Fallujah, the downside of getting control back from IS. How much power should Parliament give the security services to hack your life? And Armed Forces Day, we look ahead to a national celebration. I was so overwhelmed, so proud to think a small town like Cleethorpe could beat the cities. Out of one nightmare into another, that is the description one aid agency has used for Iraqi displacement camps for people who've escaped Fallujah after the military operation to take it back from the control of so-called Islamic State. There are still some IS fighters inside Fallujah and the camps outside are said to be overwhelmed by as many as 30,000 new arrivals in the last week. Well, Carl Shambri from the Norwegian Refugee Council described what the camps are like. The conditions are extremely dire. Uh, the people who have fled from the nightmare of Fallujah have stepped into another one. Uh, there are lots of people. Um, hund- I've seen hundreds of uh, families still out there in the open and under the sun. It's extremely hot. Uh, there's a huge shortage of water and food and uh, medicines. Uh, those are the big priorities right now, but also tents. Uh, there are many people who are still without tents, even though they are uh, inside the displacement camps. Carl Shamri from the Norwegian Refugee Council. I'm joined now by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and also here throughout this week's programme is former Sky News foreign and diplomatic correspondent, Tim Marshall. Good to speak to you both. Uh, Christopher, the price for freeing Fallujah seems to be a high one. Has it been badly planned? Well, it's not very high, is it? Because this is war. <laughs> You know, and with the numbers that we're talking about, doesn't make that the most terrible thing. But when you look at it with with a spotlight, you start thinking to yourself that Fallujah had had has fifty thousand, let's say, as best as people could tell, of people who can be regarded as uh, as hostages in 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 their own town. Even that doesn't matter. That is the way that things go. What is very important is how much you can get someone like Fallujah taken in stages because you don't just sit there in the middle and say, right, we own Fallujah. If you're uh, ISIS, you're in the normal way of taking a a town or having a town with outposts, etc. What do you do to the town? And also the fact that the whole concept of Fallujah and the other towns, as far as ISIS is concerned, it's not like other organisations. It regards itself as a proper place where you have uh, organizations such as social mm. services, teaching, etc., all run by ISIS. So it's a far more complex thing than, than, than just a straightforward battle. Tim Marshall, when, when you're planning that kind of operation to retake somewhere like Fallujah, is there any way that you can actually limit the displacement of people who are living there, who are, who are holed up there? You can't limit the displacement, but what you can do is plan for it when you should be sensible enough to know it's going to happen. So you're a bit thick if you don't know it's going to happen, and if you do know it's going to happen and you haven't bothered to get thousands of tents there, then you're a bit uh, uncaring, and I think it's probably the latter since when I was there not enough humanitarian there was planning none. in this there was no, as far as i can tell there was none so the women and children and some men came out under fire and wh- why was there none i don't think that people in the authorities in that country they rarely uh, care about their people not just the politicians in baghdad the regional leaders in the, of fallujah and anbar province sat this out up in Kurdistan. They were not there back down near Baghdad planning 
for what to put into the desert. Second thing that happened, which I actually have some sympathy for, is that the Iraqi military did have to separate men from women. They did have to check who these people are. But an awful lot of thousands of people stuck out in the desert, a lot of them are there without their menfolk, and they just haven't planned for this. Mm, the, um, the Americans, um, three or four weeks ago, I was in Washington to talking about this. And they've got a policy which they, they start off like this. When you open a door, you've got to own the corridor. In other words, when you start an operation like this, you've got to make sure that you have the corridor, you know where they go. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the first things they did, or, or had had, over a period of three and a half weeks, they had a 42% a uh, guess that they could get those number of people out, just 42% of them. If they, the rest of them, they wouldn't get out at all. Then they had no organisation, and it had that they could put in to make this happen, in other words, so that you could own the corridor. And one of the reasons they hadn't got that in is that they couldn't apply in the same way as they would normally do in a military operation. They couldn't supply, for example, close air support. They didn't have uh, protection for the aid agencies and also their own people. Mm. And they could not rely on the structure that was, was taking place with the Iraqis which the Iraqis themselves said, we have got to, this is our city, we have got to be seen by the rest of the country. And the Americans were saying to me, that can't be so, we will never own the corridor. Tim Marshall, what do you think the consequences will be of this influx, this, this displacement of thousands, tens of thousands of people, of the stability of the region? I, I agree with Christopher because everything he said actually put it that the Iraqis said to the Americans, don't worry, we can handle this and then didn't plan. It's, you know, I'm not blaming the Americans or the aid agents for this. It's, it's the Iraqi authorities. What it means is there's an even less uh, unity of the people and believing in the state able to take care of them. People of Fallujah won't even forgive their own regional leaders. Uh, th the lesson to be learned is to put the things into place before you then move on to mm. Mosul, which is some distance away. But let's hope they will... But A, let's hope they open the doors so that the Norwegians and others can get all the aid in very, very quickly and sort that situation out. But in the longer term, if they're going to do a massive operation in, in Mosul, which I think will be extremely destructive unless ISIS run away they need to plan for the day after. ISIS ain't going to run away. Um, the point being, and also they were saying, telling me this, is that you, when you, if just supposing you manage to get Fallujah, and you, you can remember how Americans feel about Fallujah, it, is, it holds a very special place. It's almost like Dien Bien Phu to the, to the, to the French in, in, in what was then the war in, in Southeast Asia. Um, they cannot hold it. And that is the problem. They cannot guarantee they will hold it, and they certainly cannot guarantee they will hold it with the, with again, with the I Iraqi army. And that is the huge problem. So where do we go to Fallujah? What do we go to Fallujah with? We go to the Fallujah, in theory, with the same sort of assets that you wanted to go to... Oh, sorry, uh, Mosul, with the same sort of assets that you would have in okay. Fallujah. If you haven't got them because you're still trying to sort out how you look after a place that you have, mm. supposedly it does happen, uh, to get back, uh, then you're not, going, you're not going anywhere near Mosul. Tim, in, in light of the experience here in Fallujah, how do you think the Americans are going to react with the prospect of Mosul looming? Well, I think they're going to try and make sure it's better planned, because everyone I know... How do they do that? Well, they've had a lot longer lead-in, 
and th they have more months to come. I mean, there's an awful lot of skirmishing around the, the, the perimeters that they're going to have to do for a very long time. But I just hope they can lean on the Iraqis. But they have... There's nothing to lean on. Yeah, exactly. They there's very little influence. Yes. The Iraqi... The Iraqi but these are the points I'm making, Chris. The, yeah. uh, we agree with each other. They're so corrupt as well yeah. and mm. inept that there's no way are they going to get Mosul as a Christmas present. Mm. Not this year. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. A quick reminder, you can listen to SITREP as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. SITREP with Kate Still to come, this year's Armed Forces Day heads to the Lincolnshire coast. We look ahead to the national celebration. The security services could soon be able to access all electronic devices in a particular area if they believe there is a serious threat, but Parliament must decide how far they can go. It's reported this week that GCHQ will be able to use so-called bulk powers to help identify when it believes attacks are about to be mounted. So... Will this legislation reassure the public? Professor David Omond is a former head of GCHQ and joins me now. Professor, good to speak to you today. And what exactly would these powers allow the security services to do? Give us a scenario. Well, I'll take a scenario perhaps from the past, from the uh, work done by British forces in Afghanistan where you had the Taliban, the Taliban were using mobile telephones to communicate uh, GCHQ and the American partners, sometimes were able to intercept those kinds of communications and provide operational or even tactical intelligence to support the protection of British forces. That's a very obvious case where if you've got access to the communications of your adversary, you're in a much stronger position. Another case might be, say, in Iraq or Syria today, where there are extremists who are trying to contact sympathisers in Europe, including in the United Kingdom, and they are communicating. Can uh, the intelligence agencies get across those communications, uncover them, and thus discover... Who is it in France or Belgium or the United Kingdom or Germany who is in touch uh, with the known terrorists? That could be the beginnings of a long and complicated investigation which will actually stop a terrorist attack such as the atrocities we've seen in the last 18 months. So that's the kind of work that they're trying to do. What the bulk powers do, which requires a warrant, they can only be applied overseas, so we're not talking about uh, bulk uh, interception of people's communications here in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's an overseas power. Uh, it would require the Secretary of State to sign a warrant, and under the new arrangements in the bill, it would then require a very senior judge uh, to review that decision and ensure that it was within the law. Given the examples that you've just cited, I presume you would think the public should be very reassured by this? Yes. Uh, this is activity which has gone on and does go on today. It's How often does it go on? It's, part, it's one of the tools in the armoury of the intelligence agencies trying to keep us safe. Uh, bulk powers are also used uh, by GCHQ to uh, uncover 
cyber attacks, malware that's heading our way, looking for the signature of particular kinds of uh, attacks that the cyber criminals are uh, trying to direct against us. What the new bill does is it doesn't give new powers, but what it does is actually provide new safeguards. How sophisticated are our enemies in this kind of interception? How often do the terrorists use this kind of interception? Well, the terrorists themselves aren't using the interception. They're using the communications. And the big issue here is that we all use the same uh, mobile phones. We all use the same tablets. We all use the same laptops. And we're all using the same Internet and the same World Wide Web. So uh, this is now the way that we all talk to each other and communicate with each other. So if a terrorist uh, in, say, Syria is trying to stimulate uh, an attack here in the UK, they're going to be using Internet communications in the same way as everyone else. So it's very important that the uh, authorities have the uh, ability to try and mm -hmm. uncover those communications. But of course they need authority, they need a warrant, uh, it's got to be done uh, lawfully. And what the new bill does is put the whole thing very clearly and openly under the rule of law. In the past uh, this activity would have gone on, but the public perhaps wouldn't have known of it. Now we're in an age now where I think governments just have to admit Yes, this is... I uh, presume we only know so much anyway, do we, Professor? Yes, I mean... What, what don't we know? <laughs> well, I hope we don't know uh, the names of the targets that are being investigated or their whereabouts, the exact uh, technical capabilities, because if that's in the newspapers if, or media, if that's exposed, then the terrorists know, and the criminals know exactly what to do to mm. avoid uh, the law. Uh, and it's very important. Uh, if you, another example uh, where this kind mm. of work has been used is exposing paedophile rings. So you have these appalling cases of child abuse mm. being conducted via the internet. Professor, uh, listening to this is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Tell me, I tell you, it's not that long ago when you used to deliberately just go on a stroll down uh, outside the Russian embassy and there was the BT tent, you know, those you red did. and white stripes. You did, stripes. did you, Christopher? Nothing else to do, nothing <laughs> else to do. These tents over, over the manhole covers and with the crocodile clips and, you know, everybody knew about it. We have advanced, haven't we, so far in IT capabilities in every area that we can even think of. Um, we've got more assets now, more targets, more difficulties. How far can legislation, or does legislation, do you think, have to keep pace with the so-called advances and the possibilities in this whole idea of intelligence gathering. Well, this massive new piece of legislation is going through Parliament at the moment. Come September, it'll be in the House of Lords for their stage. My hope is that by the end of the year, it will be on the statute book. People can read it. They can read the explanatory notes. They know the kinds of work that the agencies are going to be authorised to do, but they won't know, obviously, the individual cases till perhaps those come to court. You don't want to be doing that every year. So this has been one of the difficulties uh, of the legislation. Can you make it at least reasonably future-proof? And that's one of the reasons why this legislation, and it's the first time, I think, anywhere in Europe, 
that this approach has been taken is quite open in saying it's not just interception of people's communications in Syria or Iraq, it's also the ability to interfere with equipment, to hack into computers, to mine databases, because this is where information about the people who mean us harm can be found. So if you're going to do that, let's admit it, let's be open, mm. let's put the judges into the loop which is happening, uh, let's make sure there are proper warrants and oversight, uh, then we can all be confident this is not going to be misused by some future government uh, for repressive purposes. Always good to hear from you. Professor David Oman, former head of GCHQ, thank you for your time today. The second annual Army Women's Networking Conference has taken place in Tidworth. The event included workshops and talks by key people, including the head of the Army General, Sir Nick Carter. He spoke to our reporter Shirley Swain about a wide range of issues affecting women. The CGS said events like this are extremely useful. Well, networks are really important. I think they represent a modern way of working. And what this provides is an opportunity to share best practice, to see what other people are doing in the network, but also to influence policy and provide support to all those who belong to the network. But is it also an opportunity for the army to ask the female population, you know, what they really need? Well, certainly, because development of policy happens on an iterative basis, and we wouldn't want to write policy if it wasn't absolutely rooted in what the grassroots view was. Now, this is the second event. The first, of course, was last year. They talked a lot about flexible working. How far have we come? Well, quite a long way, actually, because um, one of the big announceables in the strategic defence and security review that the government published in November was the idea of changing legislation to create a flexible engagement system. Now in the army we've started a number of pilots on flexible working but I'm looking forward also to the next three years when I think that we will genuinely have a change to the Army Act and probably to the Reserve Forces Act which will really make this thing possible. They're talking about opportunities for promotion, they're mentioning mentorships, is that going to be available for them? No definitely because as I think I said last year and I shall re-emphasise again this year, this is also about modernising the career structure and a career structure that was essentially optimised principally for men has got to evolve to make it possible for all people to serve a full career. They've also mentioned opportunities on the Army Board. There's currently no female member on the Army Board. Is that likely to happen? Well, strictly speaking, that's not true. Um, I have a non-executive advisor on the Army Board who is female, mm. but also I have an advisor, um, General Sue Ridge, um, the first woman to be promoted to two-star rank is my lawyer and therefore she sits in on my army board meetings but I'm in no doubt that this is something that's going to happen. Give it time, we only opened most of the roles up to women in 1997, we now have a one-star officer who's flourishing, a two-star officer as a lawyer and others will follow. We must mention the Cheryl James inquest and you know the reports of a toxic culture in the army. What's your response and what's going to have to change? Well, the first thing that I would say is that the Army unequivocally apologises to the James family for what occurred. And I'm in absolutely no doubt that it's something that must never happen again. Um, but we've done a lot uh, to change things since that event 20 years ago. Uh, and I'm pretty confident that our training system now is much better supported and absolutely understands the importance of pastoral care associated with that and the ratios of instructors to students. But I'm also absolutely certain that we've got a lot more to do. And I'm on the record as getting behind this. If you watch the evidence that I gave to the Defence Select Committee last week, you'll be in no doubt how passionately I feel about changing the culture in the British Army and about putting leadership at the front end of changing that culture. 
We'll be discussing opportunities for women in the army. It's coming close to the announcement of should they be on the front line in close combat quarters. How close are we to that and what's the feedback so far? Well, I'm not sure where you get your evidence from that we're close to announcement. I think that all that people actually know is that we've gone through a process of studying the scientific and physiological implications In fact, for everybody serving in ground combat operational roles. And we're about to be in a position where we will be able to give some advice to ministers. But we're not yet in a position to do that. Do you think there's a realistic chance that women could be on the front line? Well, women already do serve on the front line. And I think you have to be careful of your language here. I mean, some three women won a military cross Mm. in Afghanistan. So I think it's a bit patronising to suggest that they're not already on the front line. They absolutely are. And they're playing a fundamental role. The distinction is whether they serve in ground close combat. And that's a slightly different question. That's the head of the Army General, Sir Nick Carter, there. Well, still with me is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and Sky News, until recently, Sky News foreign diplomatic correspondent, Tim Marshall. Uh, Tim, um... As the Chief of the General Staff said there, we've come a long way. Do you think the Army has further to go? I think nearly everywhere has further to go, and the Army's not an exception in that. The Army is a special case, though, uh, precisely because of what was discussed at the end of that interview, which we can come back to. Uh, so Nick is, I, I believe he is dedicated to trying to, trying to change the culture, leaving to one side combat. I think it was his phrase, maximising talent, that he, that he came out with last year. He's also talked about having to have a career structure that is flexible, which I assume is a nod towards pregnancy, uh, and and allowing that into the culture and an acceptance in the military culture that they will be slightly more like the civilian career structure, uh, which they are still behind. Um, As to whether you'll change the culture of men and women, less so, and as to whether there's women going to be on the combat line... I can't see that in the foreseeable future. Christopher, how much difference do you think it would make if women did go into combat as infantry soldiers? I don't think that it is a que- that is the right question. Um, what is the, the right country, question the, then? I mean, we are in a society which says women got to be equals. And by being equals, that means you could do all the jobs that men got to do. The practical side of being in having a military system... Uh, is that you do the job that the military needs to do. Now, you don't give a job to a woman because she happens to be a woman or something like that. Now, I'm not making a mockery of it, but that is perfectly true. And I've said this before, just next door in this studio, there's a picture of a woman uh, on the wall who was killed on the front line in Afghanistan doing a front-line job. Mm. So, you know, um, she was in the studio sort of two weeks earlier. So there is that. I mean, if people want to prove there's blood and guts for women to sort of take care of, that's fine. Okay. But there's another side of this. Women, by and large, is what is the percentage of women in the armed forces? That's important to examine that. And the fact and that what is the very, percentage? The, and it's a very small, it's about 18%. And the fact that you've only got one-star rank is the normal uh, rank that women get to because of the sort of jobs they do. And you've got somebody like Sue Ridge... General Stu Ridge, who is a two-star, but she's a two-star in the Adjutant General's office. Mm. It is not a, an infantry role. Tim Marshall, what do you think the immediate priority should be? Well, changing, if there is a bullying culture which is, is also has a misogynistic element to it, change that culture 
um, do make sure that women feel comfortable in the workplace. Yes, have a flexible career structure, but if I can just damage my uh, feminist credentials, I am unconvinced by the argument that there would be anywhere near enough women that could physically pass the test for combat roles. It's hard enough for the strongest men to do that. I know there have been some women Marines in the United States, Marine Corps, but uh, I'm not sure this is something that's going to happen here in the near future. Big protein eaters. Armed Forces Day is just 48 hours away this year. Cleethorpes in northeast Lincolnshire has been selected as the location for the national event. Tim Cooper will be hosting live coverage of Armed Forces Day on Forces TV and looks at why the town has been chosen as the focal point for this year's event. The Armed Forces Day flag arriving at Cleethorpes earlier this week. I was so overwhelmed, so proud to think a small town like Cleethorpes could beat the cities and take this national. D-Day veteran Walter Marshall expressing the feelings of many in this town, surprised at being chosen, but also immense pride. Nestled on the Humber estuary, Cleethorpes is a traditional seaside town. Its expansive promenade will be the focal point for Armed Forces Day. A huge parade, the highlight, along with beach landings, capability demonstrations and a display by the Red Arrows. The Reds are based at nearby RAF Scampton and will be providing a full show. Flight Lieutenant Matt Masters is one of the pilots, Red 2. It means an awful lot to, to the team, um, just primarily because it's one of the local shows that we do. It's only an hour's drive up the road, but it's, it's a few minutes for us, and displaying to over 100,000 people is something that um, we're going to relish and we'll look forward to uh, hopefully providing a full display. But why has Cleethorpes been chosen? Well, their own Armed Forces Day events are hugely popular, regularly attracting 60,000 people. Aside from that, Lincolnshire has huge links with the military, particularly the RAF. I met Phil Bonner from Aviation Heritage Lincolnshire at the International Bomber Command Centre overlooking Lincoln. By the end of the First World War, we had over 30 uh, airstrips in the county. Obviously, a lot of that prime agricultural land was handed back to the farmers. At the start of the Second World War, we had about 10 airfields, but by the end of the Second World War, uh, we had over 40, and um, of which 26 were Bomber Command airfields, hence the uh, uh, phrase uh, Bomber County. The RAF is woven into the fabric of this county. At Waddington Village, I paid a visit to the local pub to meet the landlord, Dave Densham, himself ex-Air Force, now running a pub with strong aviation links. Always in and out of the place. Uh, this is my squadron pub in the 1970s uh, when the Vulcans were here. The Americans were here in the First World War, the Australians in the Second World War. Uh, the Vulcan bar at the time was where 50 Squadron was. Um, Nine Squadron used to use this bar. One Squadron was around the corner. 44 used to use the wheat sheaf. And it was just, t you know, that's where you went. At the forefront of many people's yeah. minds at this year's Armed Forces Day in Cleethorpes will certainly be the unique relationship enjoyed by Lincolnshire and the Royal Air Force. With upwards of 160,000 people expected at the big event, it's likely to be a fitting tribute to our Armed Forces personnel. Tim Cooper for SITREP in Lincolnshire. Well, listening to Tim's report with me was Christopher Lee and Tim Marshall. Christopher, um, do you think events like Armed Forces Day have taken on a new importance, given that the British military is not involved in any active operations? It's a chance to see our armed forces in action. I don't think it's taken on any new importance whatsoever to the public. 
public liked them anyway. I mean, Maybe to the like, people taking part? No, uh, the people taking part, and you have this, I mean, I mean, the, the first one was at, uh, was at Devonport, and that made a huge amount of sense. You had Navy, you had Royal Marines, you had Army there, and the every single day the public saw uh, the military somewhere along, it was a whole military complex. There are not many places in the United Kingdom where the public see anything to do with the military at all. And I think that someone like Cleethorpes or, or Guildford... I mean, Guildford is the last place you'd expect in a, in to have a way, armed forces suppose, there. It was a huge success. Yeah, I suppose in a way it's, a, it's an opportunity to see the sort of military past a particular areas of the country as well. Yes, because the, the, I mean, the terrible image of, of up, until, up until five years ago, four or five years ago, was Wooten Bassett. And there was mm. a war on, and people were far more aware. Now there isn't then people have a different uh, awareness. Tim, um, do you think there's more to this than PR? Well, that... if the, You've thrown me by that question because uh, there isn't a great deal more to life than PR because PR <laughs> is... As for you to is, say, is re- Tim. <laughs> ...perception and reflections of reality. Um, I don't think it's just a PR exercise. I think, it, it's, it's, I think the military is woven into the fabric of British society. Mm. I think that is shown... Well, I, I see uh, examples of it left, right and centre. I'm glad it's in Cleethorpes. Uh, because an awful lot of people from places like Cleethorpes join the armed forces, and it's given me an excuse to read the Grimsby Telegraph and give you its headline. Go ahead, please do. Tanks invade Cleethorpes. Not before time. What day was that then? <laughs> I think it was yesterday. No, look, seriously, Toby's Carvery, Carvery is giving free meals on Armed Forces mm. Day tomorrow. Um, we've always had elements of this. Uh, there is a residual affection. It's shown in the polls, and uh, I think it's re- reasonable and healthy that it's going ahead. I do agree with what Christopher said, because I agree with everything that Christopher says. <laughs> we we learned to do that. that I'm privately disagree. Even without it, um, they're still fairly popular. Have you ever eaten at Toby's Carvery? <laughs> and on that note, we will leave it for this time today. Thanks to Tim Marshall and all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS, sit rep, and never miss an episode. Listen to us as a podcast. We'll be back same time next week from me, Kate Jabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Both things.